Human-induced climate change is widespread, rapid, and intensifying, and some trends are now irreversible. Greenhouse gas emissions from fossil fuels are choking our planet. The scientists of the world have told us we have 10 years to act, yet progress is stalled at all levels. How can this be? I will tell you why. The climate crisis is an unprecedented global crime and the smoking gun lies in the hands of big oil and gas. They have known with precision for over 40 years that they were doing no less than creating a mass extinction event. As over 20 pending lawsuits by U.S. states and cities now attest, the response from the oil and gas industry was to hide the truth in a coordinated and well-financed big tobacco-style misinformation campaign. All the while, the emissions during the last decade have been higher than at any time in human history. The only way to achieve the goals of the Paris Agreement and limit global warming to 1.5 degrees C is to rein in big oil and gas. Well, essentially, that sets this whole thing up. I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is Newsbeat. The voice you heard was Raya Salter, an attorney, consultant, educator, and clean energy law and policy expert, testifying before the most recent rounds of congressional hearings into Big Oil's role in the climate crisis that's now upon us. Lawmakers held three hearings in mid-September into the fossil fuel industry, including how it peddles disinformation, leverages its influence and financial might to hire PR and marketing agencies to help spread their lies, and its years-long campaign to target protesters and climate activists with the threat of imprisonment. On that note, stay with us all the way till the end to hear a verse from our artist-in-residence Liquid from our previous episode on criminalizing protest. Now, back to the cold open you just heard. Raya pulled no punches, and neither do we. That's why we're following up on our last episode, Climate Propaganda, The Fossil Fuel Industry's Big Lie, all about the fossil fuel industry's role in all of this and their incestuous and deceitful campaign of disinformation with this drop, digging a little more into the smoking guns, as Raya referred to them, the voluminous, overwhelmingly damning documents and testimony proving that these companies not only knew about the hellish effects of their actions, but are continuing, continuing to lie about it while the world burns. I'm Manny Faces, Newsbeat's producer, audio editor, and host. Now, buckle in because our guest, Emily Sanders, is about to rip the bloody mask off Big Oil and its top executives and expose them for the greedy, soulless, planet-destroying liars that they are. She's editorial lead at the nonprofit Center for Climate Integrity and the founder and writer of Exxon News a weekly newsletter on Substack that tracks the fossil fuel industry's ongoing climate deception and efforts to hold them accountable. Now, just a quick reminder, while you're checking out her incredible work at Exxon News, that's K-N-E-W-S dot Substack dot com, be sure to check out our newsletter as well at Newsbeat dot Substack dot com for new episodes like this one, updates, and a lot more. Now, any questions or comments you have, shoot us an email at usnewsbeat at gmail dot com. We always love to hear from you. And of course, make sure you're subscribing to Newsbeat on your favorite podcast or audio streaming app. And if you dig what we do, leave us a review. That last part is super important to show others that we're worth spending some time with. 
If you love this pod as much as we know you do, help us grow this audience and show the corporate media what independent journalists and podcasters can do. Now, here it is. This is Exposed, the fossil fuel industry's big lie, part two. Today, we are holding our third hearing in the committee's investigation into the fossil fuel industry's decades-long climate disinformation and greenwashing campaigns. At our first hearing last October, big oil executives admitted for the very first time to Congress that climate change is real and that burning fossil fuels is a primary cause and that this is an existential threat to our planet. But these executives refused to commit to real changes to keep warming within acceptable levels. Instead, they repeated their company's misleading climate pledges and described their, quote, aspiration, end quote, to reduce emissions decades in the future. So the hearings are part of an ongoing investigation by the House Oversight and Reform Committee. The committee is building on an already very well-established record of climate disinformation. In 2015, the LA Times and Inside Climate News broke the Exxon News story, which showed that the company had an early and deep scientific understanding of climate change and was actually leading research in climate science decades ago, but then decided to pivot to undermining what they knew publicly and downplaying climate science to prevent action. In the fall of 2015, an investigation by the Pulitzer Prize-winning Inside Climate News, as well as the Los Angeles Times and the Columbia School of Journalism, revealed a trove of documents from scientists inside oil giant ExxonMobil. The documents show Exxon understood a clear scientific consensus existed on the greenhouse effect, that the buildup of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere could become a serious problem and mentioned the distinct possibility of effects that could be catastrophic for a substantial fraction of the Earth's population. And that initial Exxon New revelation really snowballed. It wasn't just Exxon New. It turned out that Chevron, Shell, and BP were, were all in on it too. And we started learning more that the industry pushed disinformation in the media, that they bought ads and eventually advertorials, which are ads disguised as newspaper editorials, that they created front groups. They donated millions of dollars to front groups that denied climate change, and that they lobbied to kill climate legislation like the Kyoto Protocol and Waxman-Markey just before it could pass. It was publicly reported all summer of 2021 that these companies were lobbying against the climate provisions in Build Back Better. The industry has worked really hard to water those provisions down. And in that summer, Keith McCoy, a former senior lobbyist for the industry, even admitted that the company used third-party groups to attack climate science and that they used their lobbying power to undermine climate action and that they actually use their support for climate policies 
as talking points and a shield to distract people from what they actually lobby for. Mr. McCoy will become one of the first ever executives to claim that ExxonMobil has aggressively fought climate science using front organizations to maximize shareholder profit. Did we aggressively fight yeah. against um, uh, some of the science? Yeah. Uh, yes. Did we join some of these shadow groups uh, to work against uh, some of the early efforts? Yes, that's true. Uh, but there's nothing, there's nothing illegal about that. This entire strategy was outlined in a 1998 action plan created by Exxon, the American Petroleum Institute, and others, which states that, quote, victory will be achieved when climate change becomes a non-issue, meaning that the Kyoto proposal is defeated and there are no further initiatives to thwart the threat of climate change, unquote. So the Oversight Committee took a comprehensive look at all of this evidence, but what it really seems to have focused on is exposing how the industry is still spreading disinformation today and giving us a window into these executives' complete lack of remorse for putting the planet and all of humanity at risk. And what we've seen is that instead of taking responsibility for their company's historic deception, these executives are continuing to greenwash their reputations and to lie about their intent to transition away from fossil fuels. So the hearing last October was really a historic moment. For far too long, Big Oil has escaped accountability for its central role in bringing our planet to the brink of a climate catastrophe. That ends today. It was the first time we saw the executives of all the major oil and gas companies actually appear, albeit virtually over Zoom, to testify before Congress. So it was the heads of Exxon, Shell, BP, Chevron, and the American Petroleum Institute, as well as the Chamber of Congress. The companies know that the evidence against them is really bad. It's the same reason that they're fighting to escape trial in the many climate liability lawsuits that have been filed against them up until this point. So rather than actually engage with their records of disinformation, they just kept trying to change the topic at these hearings. We really saw executives offering up empty platitudes, dodging questions about their disinformation, and trying to change the subject by touting their net zero pledges, which, by the way, have since been proven wildly insufficient to avert global climate catastrophe. In February, a major peer-reviewed study found that the company's pledges amounted to nothing more than very elaborate greenwashing. The authors wrote that, quote, we conclude the company's transition to clean energy business models is not occurring since the magnitude of investments and actions does not match discourse, end quote. The companies also tried to divert attention by saying that they've supported the Paris Agreement for years. Chevron CEO Mike Wirth mentioned the company's support for the Paris Agreement nine times in his opening remarks. We've been vocal and transparent in our support for governments to implement policies that are cost effective and achieve the greatest emission reductions at the lowest overall cost to society. 
We have advocated for an economy-wide revenue neutral price on carbon for more than a decade and have publicly supported the Paris Agreement since its inception. But according to a lobbying analysis released by the committee just before the hearing, the companies have spent almost nothing, 0.17% of their entire legislative lobbying since 2015 in support of the Paris Agreement or any related legislation. And as members of the committee pointed out, Chevron itself hadn't lobbied a single time out of 986 reported instances of legislative lobbying. They had lobbied on corporate taxes 144 times, though. The CEOs also said that fossil fuels were contributing to climate change, but they wouldn't acknowledge that they're the primary cause of the crisis. Exxon CEO also claimed that the International Energy Agency says the world will continue relying on fossil fuels. ExxonMobil and its roughly 70,000 employees are proud of the contributions we make every day to improving the lives of people all around the world. It is vitally important work. We also recognize that society must continue to diversify our energy mix to address climate change. ExxonMobil has long recognized that climate change is real and poses serious risks. But there are no easy answers. As the International Energy Agency has said, oil and gas will continue to be necessary for the foreseeable future. We currently do not have the adequate alternative energy sources. But in 2021, the IEA actually said the opposite, that there is no need for continued investment in fossil fuels. So oddly enough, their tactics of disinformation and delay were clearly present throughout the hearing itself. Maybe most importantly, when asked by Chair Carolyn Maloney if they would pledge to stop spending money to obstruct and lobby against emissions reductions policies and stop spreading disinformation, not a single one of them would commit to doing so. Will you take the pledge, yes or no? Well, for your specific pledge, what we're pledging to do is advocate for low carbon policies that do, in fact, take the company and the world to net zero. That's the pledge I'm, I'm willing to commit to. Well, I'm asking well, if you'll stop spending money either directly or indirectly to oppose efforts to reduce emissions and address climate change. Just stop spending money. Madam Chair. That's on lies. Time. Okay, I, I take that uh, you don't want to take the pledge. All right. As for claiming that they weren't involved in the disinformation campaigns, the CEOs completely refused to acknowledge or accept responsibility for the industry's history of disinformation. At one point in the hearing, ExxonMobil CEO Darren Woods even defended his predecessor, Lee Raymond who was well known for adamantly promoting climate denial, saying that the company was just parroting what we all knew about climate at the time. That's of course not true because Exxon knew far more than most. And when the oil executives were asked whether they had ever approved a disinformation campaign, each one said no. And individually, many of them lied and said their companies had never been involved in climate disinformation. Any suggestion that Chevron is engaged in an effort to spread disinformation and mislead the public on these complex issues is simply wrong. 
At the end of the October hearing, the chairwoman of oversight and reform, Carolyn Maloney, said that the companies had not complied with the committee's record requests, and she issued subpoenas to Exxon, Chevron, Shell, BP, and the American Petroleum Institute. Last week, the committee released a huge trove of internal company documents that were obtained through those subpoenas. Put simply, these documents show that big oil is still not taking its responsibility to curb emissions seriously. And while the fossil fuel industry fiddles, our planet, our planet is burning. What they shared at the committee hearing was that while these companies were publicly boasting about their commitments to climate solutions, they were minimizing and downplaying those commitments behind closed doors, essentially admitting that their pledges were nothing more than talking points and a means to preserve their reputations while they continued to destroy the planet. In a memo accompanying that document dump, the committee summarized their findings from these documents, and they said that the companies were putting more effort into creating the impression that they were moving away from fossil fuels than actually making a real effort to do so, that their pledges and green advertising focus on technologies that they're not actually sure will work and are decades away from being implemented, and that these companies are relying on misleading language to portray themselves as partners in climate solutions while actively delaying real solutions and continuing to be the primary cause of the problem. In the meantime, as I think last week's hearing made very clear, these companies are making record profits while the rest of us, but especially frontline communities, are paying a really egregious price. These companies use this windfall profit to enrich investors and boost salaries of top executives. Their clean energy investments, however, were a drop in the bucket. Today, our committee is releasing new documents from our investigation that shed light on how the fossil fuel industry misled the public about their climate goals, their actions, and their investments. We heard from members of communities that have been hit really hard by climate disasters, from the deadly flooding in Kentucky to hurricanes in New York and Louisiana. Yet we didn't hear anything from the board members of these corporations who were invited to show up and answer to the public, but refused to do so. And I think overall, the hearing gave us just a lot more evidence that these companies are really acting in bad faith and that they can't be trusted. Unfortunately, none of these fossil fuel directors bothered to show up. These four companies has, have also taken other steps to obstruct this committee's investigation. After I issued subpoenas last November, the companies withheld documents at the heart of our investigation, including from their boards of directors, while flooding the committee with thousands of press clippings and other materials. Today, I am renewing my call for these companies to comply with these subpoenas. I want to be clear that our investigation goes on and that we will not stop 
until the American people get the truth about the fossil fuel industry's role in our climate crisis. I want to just give some detail on the four major ways that oil companies use misleading language and deception in their net zero commitments. These pledges exclude most of their total emissions and shift the responsibility to consumers. So many net zero plans exclude what's called scope three emissions in their accounting, which means the emissions that come from consumers using their product as intended. And for the majority of oil companies, the emissions that they do plan to reduce, scope one and two, or operational emissions, are just 10 to 20% of their emissions in total. So basically, while claiming to get to net zero emissions, they're putting almost the entire burden to make that happen onto their consumers. The second way is that they rely on something called post-emissions compensation. So instead of actually reducing their emissions, many of these plans promise to remove carbon out of the atmosphere after the fact. And that includes carbon capture and storage and what's called nature-based offsets, which is the idea that you can plant trees in one location while polluting in another. The thing is, oil majors have no real idea if these schemes are feasible as they've never actually been implemented at scale. And while BP touted carbon capture as key to its transition to cleaner fuel, the company privately hoped this approach would, quote, enable the full use of fossil fuels across the energy transition and beyond, end quote. We also found that Exxon spent nearly $70 million to advertise its research in algae-based biofuels. But company documents reveal that technology is, quote, still decades away. For example, Shell's 2021 net zero scenario includes and relies very heavily on a vague plan to, quote, plant trees over an area approaching that of Brazil, end quote. Aside from that being a pretty preposterous idea that would only serve to prolong their ability to pollute and emit fossil fuels, there's the question of how they're going to acquire that land, which would almost certainly put local communities' land rights at risk, if they could even do it. The third way is their targets cover only a portion of their business operations. So many of these plans exclude an entire section of their business like refining or assets that are operated by a partner company, which allows them to pollute more while claiming to emit less. So if they have assets that are owned and operated by a partner company, they're not accounting for those emissions. And then the fourth is that they focus on something called emissions intensity or emissions per barrel of oil produced so that they can pollute more efficiently while increasing their overall emissions. So Chevron has pledged that it is committed to addressing climate change but it has never promised to reduce oil production or exploration. And because Chevron is promising to also lower the intensity of its related emissions, the company can claim to be doing something good, 
while in reality it's just polluting more, more efficiently. Chevron's use of emissions intensity metrics are actually cited in a Federal Trade Commission's complaint against the company. It was the first ever to be filed against an oil company for misleading consumers about their commitments to climate and environmental action. The biggest fossil fuel companies, Exxon, Chevron, BP, and Shell, have made net zero emission pledges that they claim are in accordance with the Paris Agreement's goal of limiting global warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius. But experts tell us that all four of these pledges fall dramatically short of meeting the Paris Agreement goal. What the documents obtained by the Oversight Committee revealed is that the executives of these companies never even really intended to follow through with these pledges at all. One internal email from an employee at Shell described the company's publicized net zero scenario as having, quote, nothing to do with our business plans, end quote. In another email discussing a Twitter poll that the company posted asking members of the public what they would be willing to do to reduce emissions, an executive actually acknowledged that the company's tweet could be gaslighting. And he said, we are, after all, in a tweet like this, implying others need to sacrifice without focusing on ourselves, end quote. Exxon has also claimed to support the Paris Agreement since 2015, as have many others, but internal documents obtained by the committee revealed that Exxon and Chevron actually pressured an industry group, the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, to take out any language that would potentially commit these companies to actual real targets and metrics and governance with regard to their emissions. They asked the company to exclude any explicit commitments for them to align their advocacy with their climate-related positions, including the Paris Agreement. So while publicly they were playing up these promises behind closed doors, they were essentially just saying that these were nothing more than talking points or PR. A joint investigation from Gizmodo and the heated newsletter found, and I'd like to submit this to the congressional record, uh, found that oil company advertising exploded in Washington, D.C. last year in D.C.-based newsletters in the lead-up to the October 21 hearing here in this committee calling fossil fuel executives um, to testify. For example, between October 1st and October 22nd of 2021, 100% of Politico's morning energy newsletters were sponsored and funded by the fossil fuel industry. This also happened to be when we were in the thick of negotiating the Build Back Better Act and three weeks leading up to our hearing on Big Oil's role in promoting climate misinformation. From October 1st to October 22nd, 63% of Punchbowl newsletters were sponsored by fossil fuel companies or interest groups, and every single one of the morning energy uh, newsletters were sponsored by Big Oil. 62% of Axios's generate, uh, generate newsletters were sponsored by fossil fuel interests. The Gizmodo investigation points out that these rates are highly unusual. I was wondering, Dr. Cha, if you could speak to how that influences, how those types of ads influence the negotiating environment and political and legislative outcomes of what's happening in Congress. 
I think they have a direct influence, of course, because one thing that they do is they mainstream their talking points, so they become very normal, even though what they're saying is quite extreme. Uh, they do, they they regularly do full page ads in the New York Times to make it seem like they're doing what they need to be doing to meet their climate targets, when in fact we know that it is the exact opposite. They've also done things like pretended that they are in favor of carbon taxes, even though they lobby against them and in, in behind the scenes. So what they're trying to do is mainstream and normalize their behavior so that people don't think that what they're doing is so destructive, even though that we know what it is so destructive. These companies knew, they lied, and they're still lying today. They really have not stopped their disinformation campaigns. In fact, they've just evolved and become more savvy and more pertinent to the moment. But I think what is heartening about this moment, besides all of this accountability that we're seeing, is that, and others have said this before, but the disinformation really gets louder when we have a chance to actually act on climate change. When they feel that real action is coming down the pike, they get very nervous and they start coming out with more pledges, more justifications, and I think that's something we're seeing right now. So it gives me hope. And just another thing I would say is that we know exactly how this crisis originated. It's not something that was caused by regular people. It was caused by an industry that deliberately made the decision to downplay the science that their own employees were, were coming out with. So they had intricate knowledge of climate change and the science behind burning fossil fuels and the greenhouse gas effect long before the rest of us did. And I don't think we will ever be able to get meaningful climate policy while this industry is still at the negotiating table. Right now they are, they have so much influence over, over the debate on climate change, over climate policy. That is what really needs to change. Well, there it is. Yet more evidence that fossil fuel giants are lying about their climate commitments and trying to manipulate an unsuspecting public to further improve their bottom line. That's right, while the rest of us has been getting squeezed at the pump, watching every day as gas prices inched up and up and up, big oil was raking in the cash. According to the Washington Post, five major fossil fuel companies made $55 billion in the second quarter of this year. That's insane. ExxonMobil made $17.9 billion alone during that period, representing the largest such quarterly gain in its history. And while we might be experiencing some relief now with the onset of fall, just think back a few months ago when extreme heat was spreading across the globe, including in Europe, which saw record temperatures and tragically tens of thousands in excess deaths, meaning more people died during the period the heat wave hit than typically occurs. See, the big oil-fueled climate crisis is killing people. And yet the investments needed to transition to clean energy and give the planet and future generations a fighting chance are not nearly enough. In response to government futility and corporate greed, people are taken to the streets to implore world leaders to do better. 
Instead of heeding their advice, fossil fuel companies are using the threat of lawsuits and judicial punishment to suppress dissent. One of the ways they're doing this is through something called slap suits, short for Strategic Lawsuits Against Public Participation. The U.S.-based nonprofit Earth Rights International found 152 such cases brought by the fossil fuel industry throughout the last 10 years. According to the group, quote, slaps usually target activists, nonprofit organizations, journalists, media organizations, and concerned citizens who speak up about a matter of public concern, end quote. Now, as we've reported in the past, corporations have other ways of quashing dissent, usually with the help of their friends in elected office. Since the Standing Rock protests in 2016, state governments have introduced dozens of bills trying to criminalize protest. Remarkably, the anti-protest bills prompted the Office of the United Nations Human Rights Commission of the High Commissioner to write a stunning letter to the United States condemning these actions and reminding officials of the country's obligations under international law. That's right, the country with a Bill of Rights received a strongly worded letter from the UN to say, quote, bruh, don't y'all remember y'all had this revolution thing and protested the shit out of the king? <laughs> they didn't exactly say that, but we'd like to think that's what they said. It was something like that. Anyway, this whole other thing is a hugely important issue that doesn't garner the attention it deserves. So we wanted to share a snippet from our previous amazing episode that was called Criminalizing Protest, the U.S. government's militarized and legislative crackdown on people's right to dissent featuring one of our amazing artists and residents, the incomparable Liquid. Now, that episode is still as relevant today as it was when we first published it. So we'll provide a link in the show notes and in our Substack newsletter so you can listen to the full version. And please remember, as always, subscribe to the pod on your podcast apps or your audio streaming apps and to our free Substack newsletter, newsbeat.substack.com. Tell everyone about the work we're doing. We truly appreciate every time you shout us out on social media at US Newsbeat right into the show. Or just tell a friend. Once again, I'm Manny Faces. And on behalf of the entire Newsbeat team, we thank you for listening. Until next time, here's that bonus clip from Criminalizing Protest. We'll be back soon. Peace. Hi, um, I need to report um, an assault. Okay, where did it occur at? Um, it's happening right now. Um, it's, it's on the, um, sacred, uh, it's up at, uh, Standing Rock. There are innocent, unarmed people being attacked with water in, uh, freezing cold temperatures. Um, okay. unarmed people, it's happening right now. There okay. are militia-style police firing at point-blank range with high-powered mace, um, on unarmed people. Who protects the, the people? I arrived in August of 2016. I had inadvertently sent my little brother and sister up there trying to get them to do something post-college. And um, they pretty much uh, showed up, made a bunch of friends. And when I got there, they were like, hey, Lisa, this is our big sister. She's going to take care of us. And all of a sudden, I had like 30 youth to care for. In that time, after the International Indigenous Youth Council was formed, 
we experienced our first act of violence directly from the uh, mercenaries that worked for the Dakota Access Pipeline. And they unleashed dogs on our women um, and men and had um, dogs biting and making our people bleed. Are you telling the dogs to bite the protesters? The dog has blood in its nose and its mouth. And she's still standing here threatening. You can't put your blame on the dog. You're an against your own. You can't put your blame on the dog. That's the dog. against your own. You will live with that. That was in September 2016 in October. Um, we had our first use of Brent militarized police force when they came to raid one of our prayer camps. They actually brought in tanks and um, these MRAPs, various, I guess, different weaponries, um, like these loud sound um, equipment monitors that emit this really awful, awful noise that kind of make you want to drop to your knees and you lose all your equilibrium. I have to use uh, headphones or earphones because they have a, a sound gun that they turn on ever inter intermittently and it freaking hurts. They also brought in water tanks that they didn't end up using until November. At another point, they escalated from um, the mace that they had been using to tear gas and the tear gas to the concussion grenades that they shot into the crowds at people. Um, they were shooting military-grade beanbags at us. Um, rubber bullets. We also had several instances of uses of water cannons. Actually, the water, they were pumping the water that we were trying to protect into these water cannons to shoot them at us in negative 25 degree weather in the middle of November. I, it seemed like what started with, you know, attacks on us from these mercenaries that had been hired by the pipeline companies then escalated to the involvement of the local and state governments, um, the state-sanctioned violence, which then moved into inviting police and law enforcement from five neighboring states that then came in support with the National Guard to stand against a bunch of natives in moccasins fighting to protect water. There were a lot of people, water protectors, activists, allies, who gathered near the Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota to challenge a pipeline that was being built by the government there through the water of the tribe and creating a lot of other environmental problems. The state and local police reacted quite seriously by surveying and by trying to shut down the protests. The FAA also enacted what are called no-fly zones to limit the ability of drones and other media to document what was happening, especially around some of the biggest police activity um, that was happening on the ground. The protests were successful in stopping the permit for a bit, but then ultimately the construction continued. And not only the protesters were arrested and affected, but also individuals who were there to document the protests, including reporters like Amy Goodman and also indigenous reporters. There is an arrest warrant out for journalist Amy Goodman because she had the audacity to be a journalist. She was reporting on the Dakota Access Pipeline and the Native Americans that have been protesting it, reporting on dogs being geared toward uh, some of the protesters in a violent fashion. She got arrested for trespassing. 
One of the big trends that we've seen with this anti-protest legislation generally is that it seems to be reacting to the most successful, most powerful tactics that are used by protesters. So a lot of the bills that we've seen respond to the anti-pipeline protests near Standing Rock and other related protests, also racial justice protests in Missouri that shut down highways to protest the police killing of Mike Brown. So it really is rather than reacting with substantive change to the things that the protesters are speaking out about. It looks like state legislators are reacting to the tactics and trying to make that attempt to make their voice louder actually quieter, making it harder for them to speak out and talk about the things that they find troubling in society. I see you, do you see me when we see us, they just can't see Power to the people, not to cut you up, but human beings ain't illegal. My body is the cage and my spirit needs freedom. We all need freedom. The First Amendment afforded, we sought it when you bought us. That nobody owned us, so always like Britain when you fought them. It's oppression. You dress in fascism, it's classism. Economic cataclysm, that's true capitalism. One thing I know for certain, if it's hurting, then they working. They dig beneath the surface, cause we found our true purpose. Uh, and we all know it's worth it. What's sovereign is protected in our presence, make you nervous. There is growing outrage tonight after an unarmed African-American teenager was shot and killed by police in the St. Louis suburb of...